The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures that we can study, that we can understand more about you, more about how you have called us to live in this world. And so it's my prayer as we spend our time in this text this morning, that Holy Spirit, you would be working, that you would have your way among us that you would ground us in your word, that we would grow in our faith, that our hearts would be softened, that we would live lives boldly proclaiming through word and through deed the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so work in this time and have your way among us We pray and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat if you would. So this morning, I'm taking a little different posture. I'm going to sit, and it's not because my legs are tired. We're coming to the end of Mark's gospel, and the text that we're studying this morning is a little different than some of the other texts as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark. Depending on the translation that you use, you may see a footnote, you may have brackets, there may be some kind of a notation stating that early manuscripts don't include Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20. As elders, we've had a good deal of discussion around this. Do we teach it? Do we not teach it? So we're going to work our way through this text this morning, but with just a slightly different approach. I want us to understand that the Bibles we have, we can trust. The Bibles that we have, we can base our life off of. God has been so good to preserve his word for us. And as we read and as we study God's word, as we seek to apply his word to our lives, the Holy Spirit works through his powerful and inspired word brings about change in our lives, sanctifies us so that we become more and more like Him, so that we can live lives that reflect Him in His perfection, that we can reflect to others the grace that He has shown to us. What a great gift we have in God's Word. We can base our lives off of it. And how good God has been in preserving his word for us. 
We talk about Scripture being inspired. 2 Timothy 3, 16, that every word of God has been inspired by God. So as human authors wrote letters, gospels, as they recorded these histories of the people of Israel, they were writing their very own words, but God was superintending over it, that every word that they wrote was inspired by God. Every word was God-ordained. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, as we take a look at this text, it's a little bit clunky. And as we look at how our New Testaments came together, most of the earliest manuscripts don't include Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. But rather than cause any of us to stumble or to falter or to doubt the Bibles that we have, I hope that our approach this morning will actually strengthen us, that it'll actually encourage us. Now, here's what I mean. The Scripture that we have is made up of manuscripts. The original author wrote... Even as we look at in the New Testament, many of those are, are letters, letters written by Paul, by, by Peter, by James, letters written from one individual, sometimes to one other individual, sometimes to a church, but one original writing. And then over time, there were more and more copies made. And unlike today, where we just highlight a section and we copy and paste, they weren't able to do that. They would have to sit down and copy in writing word for word. We have manuscripts in abundance for our Bibles. What I mean by that is those copies that have been made from those originals. We have so many, and all of these manuscripts are able to be looked at, are able to be compared to one another. We can have great confidence that the words we have are very, 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 very close to what those original authors wrote. Maybe small differences here and there. Maybe someone was writing something and they spelled a word wrong. In some cases, maybe they added their own little comment in the margin, and down the road, maybe that got inserted into the text and people thought it was just part of the original text. But as we compare all of these manuscripts, we see such great consistency so that the Word of God that we have, the Bibles we have, we can put a great deal of trust in. 
An article I read earlier in the week from the Institute for Creation Research says that there are around 25,000 manuscripts for the New Testament. 25,000 manuscripts for the New Testament. In fact, just quotations from early church fathers of the New Testament, they could actually put the New Testament together just from quotations and references to the New Testament. When you look at ancient classical writings, Homer's Iliad, Caesar's Gallic Wars, things like that, you'll find manuscripts in the single digits. Caesar's Gallic Wars, there are ten manuscripts. Aristotle's Poetics, there are five manuscripts. How many manuscripts did I say for the New Testament? 25,000. If you were to take the average ancient text and stack up all the manuscripts that we had, you would have a stack around four feet high, about this high. If you were to take the manuscripts that we have for the New Testament and stack them up one by one, you would have a stack about a mile high. Do you see the difference? This should give us confidence in God's Word. Now, there are still more manuscripts being found. Excavations take place, discoveries are made, and more manuscripts. And this is a good thing, because the more that we find, the more we find they are consistent with each other. The more accuracy we have as we look to God's Word, this is strengthening the biblical text. It is not refuting it. It is not causing doubt around what those original manuscripts said. Now, here in Mark chapter 16, we have what we believe is an addition to Mark's original gospel. That Mark, when he originally wrote the Gospel of Mark, either he ended at verse 8 or, or maybe he had some alternate, alternate ending that we don't have, but that verses 9 through 20 were actually a later addition. The early church fathers, as they write about the ending of Mark's Gospel, don't seem to know anything about verses 9 through 20. Early church historians bring question about verses 9 through 20. It's my belief that verses 9 through 20 are not part of the original gospel of Mark. So what do we do when we come to something like this? What do we do when we see those notes or we see those double brackets and it says this was probably not part of the earliest manuscripts? The earliest manuscripts don't have this text. Well, our approach this morning is to look at this text, to investigate it, 
and to teach it. Because even if not being part of the original gospel of Mark, it is still consistent with Scripture. This is what the late R.C. Sproul says about this ending of Mark's gospel. He writes, in any case, the doctrines that are found in this passage are consistent with what is taught throughout the New Testament. Thus, we can read and study it with confidence and profit. And that's the plan this morning, is that we're going to work through this text. We're going to see where this text draws from other scriptures and how we can benefit from this, how we can look to the rest of God's Word and how we can grow this morning. Now, this was probably added later because... Mark chapter 16, verse 8, we'll look back there and read that together. These women, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It seems an odd place or an odd way to end a gospel. We want the stories to end with victory, with great preaching and proclamation, going into all the world. Well, and that's what we have in this alternate ending, Mark chapter 16, 19 and 20. So I believe it was something added later just to give a little more support to, (laughs) an attempt to help along the gospel of Mark to give it a better ending, perhaps, as this would go to the Gentile church to reinforce their belief, to give them greater confidence, but likely not original to Mark's writing. But we can still study it with confidence. We can look at it. We can grow from it. It will bring profit to us because it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. And that's always what our standard is. That's always what we compare to. What does God's Word say? So we read in Mark chapter 16, in verse 9, it says, When he rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, I'll just point out here, we we won't do this as we work through the entire text, but this is a little bit odd that Mark, if he had written this, that he would reintroduce Mary Magdalene, who we've already been introduced to, and give us this new bit of information. He appeared first to her. We already knew that. And it's Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. There's this new introduction of Mary Magdalene. Luke's gospel actually gives us this information about her, that as Jesus goes through cities and through villages, he's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 disciples were with him and also women 
who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So she, verse 10, went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. The disciples, they hear from Mary Magdalene that Jesus is not in his tomb, that he has risen. She finds them mourning and weeping. Their worlds had just been rocked. Understand all that they had been working toward, all that they had been hoping for was drastically, dramatically, all of a sudden changed. Jesus was betrayed. One of them had betrayed their master. Even the most prominent among them chickened out, denied knowing Jesus. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was buried. And they're mourning the loss of their friend, the loss of their teacher. This is understandable, this mourning and weeping. But as she comes and she tells them, that he was alive, what's their response? They would not believe it. This is a problem. For these disciples, rather than believing what they were told by Mary Magdalene, rather than allowing the truth to direct them, they're caving in to their own limited perspectives. They're being driven instead just simply by emotion, mourning and weeping, and we're going to stay in this place. We're going to stay here, even though we are being given evidence to the contrary, even though we are getting firsthand eyewitness experience and testimony that Jesus has raised from the dead, we're going to refuse to believe it. Jesus had instructed them about His death and His resurrection. He had told them all the way back in Mark chapter 8, that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And Mark even says, and he said this plainly. There shouldn't have been question. There shouldn't have been doubt. At this point, when Mary Magdalene comes and reports this to them, there shouldn't have been unbelief. This is the very thing Jesus said would happen. But they would not believe it. In verse 12, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. Now, this is recorded in Luke chapter 24, the Emmaus Road, as two disciples are walking along the road, and Jesus appears to them, and at first they don't recognize him. Hey, guys, what's going on today? Have you been in a hole? Have you not heard that Jesus was crucified? He's dead. He's buried. 
And Jesus, walking along the Emmaus Road, opens up Scripture to them, begins showing to them throughout all of Scripture the things concerning Himself. And they break bread together. And in the breaking of bread, Jesus makes Himself known to them. They realize this, this is Jesus. He has risen from the dead. And what do they do? They immediately go back to Jerusalem and they tell the disciples, He's risen. He's risen. Verse 13, these two disciples, after recognizing Jesus, they went back and told the rest, the rest of the disciples. But these disciples, they did not believe them. Luke tells us that these two disciples had their hearts burning within them while he opened the Scriptures to them. As Jesus is talking with them on the way and opening up Scripture to them and showing them how even beginning back with the writings of Moses, all of Scripture is about Jesus. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus, that Jesus is the high point of, of redemption, that He would come and accomplish the salvation of God's people. As he's opening up Scripture to them in this way, their hearts are burning within them. And when they recognize this is Jesus, I can imagine the pace that they ran back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, he's alive. And our hearts were burning within us when he opened up the Scriptures to us. And what are these two disciples met with? A similar heart burning? No, cold hearts, hard hearts. They went back and they tell the rest of the disciples about this, but they did not believe them. These blazing hearts are met with stone-cold hearts as they share with the rest of the disciples are you following this? First, now, it's, it's the witness of one woman, Mary Magdalene. And in that time, in that culture, that wouldn't have been the strongest witness, right? Old Testament tells us that it's on the evidence of two or three witnesses that a case would be made. And that was typically men who would serve as witnesses. Here we have one woman giving testimony to them. And they did not, they would not believe her. But now we have two men, two disciples, who come and tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus has risen. There's mounting evidence. There's greater witness. There's stronger testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. And still, they did not believe. It's their own limited perspectives. This is what we've seen. This is what we can make sense of. He hasn't appeared to us. This is all that I can put my hands on and touch and grab. 
They're stuck by their own limited perspectives and their own fickle emotions. They're just going to continue mourning and weeping, even when those emotions should be directed by the truth of God's Word, by the truth of Jesus' very own words to them about His death and about His resurrection. But they just continue with limited perspectives and with fickle emotions And then in verse 14, we read, Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. John tells us in his gospel that when Jesus came to them, they were actually in a locked room hiding out for fear of the Jews. Jesus comes and stands among them, just passing through a locked door, walking through a wall. We don't know. No big deal. Now he's there with them. Locked door is no obstacle to him. And he says to them, peace be with you. They've heard Jesus teach them about his death and about his resurrection even beforehand. They heard Mary Magdalene's testimony. They've heard the testimony of these two disciples who walked with him along the Emmaus Road, and they're still hiding behind a locked door and full of fear. Limited perspectives and fickle emotions. So Jesus comes to them himself, and he rebukes them, and rightfully so. He corrects them, and we're told these two things that they're rebuked for, unbelief and hardness of heart. Unbelief and hardness of heart. And I want us to understand this morning, church, that unbelief And hardness of heart do not exist in isolation from one another. Unbelief and hardness of heart are partners of the worst kind. They go together hand in hand. Now, I want to turn you back to Scripture. In in Psalm 95, if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip back there with me. Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, we see unbelief and hardness of heart. The psalm begins, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. 
and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Come together, let's praise The Lord, our God, let's make a joyful noise to Him. Let's worship Him. Let's bow down to Him. Let's come to Him in recognition of who He is and what He has done. Look at all He has done. Look at the creation around you. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What a great God. And then the psalmist says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. And he references back to an occasion with the people of Israel where unbelief and hardness of heart were so evident. The people of Israel in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt, and God miraculously plucks them out of the hand of Pharaoh, delivers them out of Egypt to bring them to the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. And they grumble. And they complain. And as they go along the way, they say, we're so thirsty. Things are so much better in Egypt. We want to go back. You've brought us out here to kill us. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. That was the day that God provided water for the people of Israel from a rock. Massa in the wilderness. Massa means testing, this testing in the wilderness. Meribah means quarreling, quarreling, fighting against God. They were complaining They tested the Lord. They quarreled and complained because even though they had seen His works, even though they had benefited from God's sovereignty so clearly, they didn't believe He would continue. He's brought us this far to kill us, and He's not going to bring us the rest of the way. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to bondage. Let's go back to slavery. Let's go back to misery because misery is better than here. Unbelief and hardness of heart. We've seen the same connection even in Mark's own gospel. In Mark chapter 6, Mark records for us there, beginning in verse 
51. Jesus gets into the boat with them, the disciples. The wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus had just fed a multitude, 5,000 men, with loaves and fishes. And now, as they're sent across the lake, and a storm rolls in, and the disciples believe they're going to perish, and Jesus comes on board, the wind stops, the seas calm, and the disciples are utterly astounded. And Mark records it's because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What is it that they didn't understand about the loaves? Was this some kind of a lack of intellectual understanding? I think it's a lack of reasoning faith. They had seen what they had seen. They had experienced what they had experienced, knowing there were five loaves and two fish, and they fed this great multitude, and they had 12 baskets full of fragments left over after they had eaten every one of them to the full. But they didn't understand just who it was that was with them, the power of their master, of their teacher, of their Savior, of their God, because their hearts were hardened. This is a lack of faith. This is unbelief. And it's tied in with hard hearts. Hard hearts negatively impact our faith, church. Hard hearts are going to, and they do, negatively impact our faith. Jesus rebukes the disciples for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Hardness of heart. The trouble with hardness of heart is that sometimes it's difficult to diagnose. We think of men like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who Paul writes to Timothy about, these men who made shipwreck of their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They've jumped overboard. Their ship has crashed into the rocks, broken apart. We can diagnose that. Those guys made a wreck. Their life is a disaster. But those with hard hearts, they look pretty normal. These were the disciples, mind you, who Jesus rebukes for having hard hearts. Hard-heartedness doesn't always look like shipwrecked faith. Hard-heartedness finds its seat in the pews, finds its offering in the box, 
finds prayers being offered, maybe sometimes just out of routine, out of a sense of obligation, but not out of a genuine faith. They're rebuked for unbelief and hardness of heart. And I would ask this morning, church, has unbelief and hardness of heart begun to creep in on, on you? Here's a question for the youth. Unbelief and hardness of heart. Do you have difficulty believing that what God has laid out for you is truly best? You read it in Scripture, your parents tell it to you, and you still think, no, I think I know better. I think I need to test out those waters for myself. Maybe it starts as just a question or a doubt, it's germinating, and now it's ready to sprout forth, thinking of acting on it. The writer of Hebrews talks about Moses, who chose to endure the difficulty that comes with obedience to God, and the difficulty that comes with association with God's people. He chose that rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt. But maybe you sit here this morning and you think, well, I want to find out just how fleeting those pleasures are. I want to try those. And not only for the youth, but for adults as well. We can believe those very same things. So what God has given to us in His Word what is truly best, or do we just follow our limited perspectives, our fickle emotions? Maybe you're a parent, and unbelief and hardness of heart is starting to work in when it comes to training up children. There has to be a quick fix. There has to be some kind of a program, some kind of a scheme. It's going to be that one word that just turns the whole ship around. And you're looking for that one thing, the silver bullet that's going to once and for all bring your child into perfect obedience. Smooth sailing from then on. Rather than the long game of faithful endurance, of instruction in God's Word, of time and prayer, unbelief and hardness of heart, it can look like this. Perhaps unbelief and hardness of heart is even more basic, something even more fundamental, maybe more systemic, not just one specific area, parenting or obedience to God's Word in one specific area, but maybe like the disciples, it's belief in Jesus dying for your sins and being raised for your justification. 
That's basic gospel. And maybe that's the point where you struggle, where there's unbelief and there's hardness of heart. I have a hard time believing this. This is where the disciples even found themselves. Now, they're not condemned for their wrestling and for their struggles. Jesus didn't come in and say, I'm done with you. You're out. Get a new 11, and we're going to start this over again. But they're not commended either. They're corrected. They're corrected. Unbelief and hardness of heart has come in. It's found its way into you, and you need to be corrected. To look at the weight of evidence that we have in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus, and to base our lives on that. The disciples are corrected, and then they are commissioned. They are sent out to work for Jesus. Church, we need to guard our hearts. There's so much wisdom in Proverbs about our hearts. I want to point out just a few, just just a few of these. Proverbs chapter 2 My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. inclining your heart to understanding. Verse 9, you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness. Proverbs 3, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 3, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. Verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let not them 
escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Do you see the importance of this church to allow God's wisdom, God's word, God's instruction to not just come into our mind, but to receive it into our hearts? Keep your heart with all vigilance. Be on guard, be watchful, be looking to your heart. Be so careful with your heart because out of your heart flow the streams of life. As you look around and you look at your life, what is flowing out? What kinds of things are you producing? What kind of fruit is there in your life? It's coming from your heart. So you need to guard it. You need to keep it with all vigilance. Jesus rebukes the disciples because they had failed to do this. Rebuked for their unbelief, rebuked for their hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who gave testimony about Jesus and his resurrection. He corrects them. And then we read that he commissions them. Verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Rather than being driven by their limited perspectives, by their fickle emotions, he's saying, believe in what you have received in the truth of God's word and go out on mission, this mission that you have been given by me, your Lord. They are commissioned. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we read about the great commission that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Verse 16, this is so important because whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This is a message of life. This is a message of eternity. This is the one message on which someone's eternity will be based. Do they believe or do they not believe? And we've been entrusted with this gospel, church. This is ours. We can't look to other people and think, well, they'll take care of it. They will be the ones to spread the good news. No, it's ours. Paul writes about us being ambassadors for Christ, that we are the ones who herald this message. Paul speaks to the Thessalonian church about us being entrusted with the gospel. And so we speak not to please man, but to please God. This is our message. 
the gospel message. Paul writes to the Romans that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. It's the gospel message, and it's ours to proclaim It's ours to herald. It's ours to share and to spread abroad. It's our responsibility. It's our privilege to do this. To go and to make this message of life known. Sure, it's controversial. Sure, there are those who will reject it. But there are also those who will believe and be saved unto eternal life. The value of a soul saved by our preaching is worth whatever hardship. Think about Paul and all he suffered, all he endured. Shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonments, starvation, all of it. It was all worth it to go and to herald the good news and to see lives changed, to see eternal souls saved and come in to the kingdom of God. Jesus promises that he's going to be with his disciples, verses 17 and 18. There will be signs that accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. This isn't speaking about these things as required evidence for genuine faith, but that the Lord would work to protect His people, His messengers, and grant them success as they carry out His mission. The disciples go, and they start preaching, and God speaks in in new tongues through them that people hear in their own native languages. Paul on the island of Malta, gathers a bundle of sticks, and a snake bites him. And all the people think he's, he's a goner, he's dead. And the Lord preserved him. Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you that these disciples were given this promise to go, go in faith, go in power, go in confidence that the Lord would be with them. And so then, verse 19, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. They were obedient to what God had given them to do. Their faith is overcoming their fear, their perspectives, their emotion. They go out preaching, and the Lord builds His kingdom through them. As we wrap up this last study in Mark this morning, it's my prayer that as we've tracked through this story of the life and the ministry of Jesus as we've looked at His death and His resurrection, that we ourselves have grown in our belief. 
in knowing all that Jesus accomplished while on earth and what he has entrusted to us that this message is ours and that we have been sent out into the world with this message, that it is a life-changing message, that it is an eternity-changing message. We've seen the disciples themselves grow. We've seen them fail, and we've seen them falter at times. Now, with hearts resolute, with a faith that is strong, they go out and they preach the gospel of Christ. And it's my prayer that we also would follow in the footsteps of the disciples, preaching in the name of Jesus for the building of the kingdom of God to the glory of his name. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Even as we read about disciples who struggled in faith and even wrestled with a hardness of heart with a callousness that would settle in upon them and how they needed to be corrected. It gives me comfort and it gives me hope knowing that you deal kindly with us even when we begin to act in fear instead of faith, even when at times our hearts become calloused begin to start hardening, and that before we make a shipwreck, God, that you turn us around. We thank you for the love that you have shown to the disciples and the example that gives to us as well. We thank you, Lord God, that you have been so kind to us even in our wrestlings, in our doubts, in our fears, that you continue to walk us along and grow us in our faith. And Lord, I pray that by your word, we would continue to grow in this faith. And that by your word and the work of your spirit, that our hearts would continue to be tilled up and turned over to be good soil, to receive the Word of God, that it would bear fruit in our lives. Father, give us boldness in our speech. Give us clarity in our proclamation of the good news to go forth and to tell all that we would come across of this wonderful story, this glorious message that brings life to all who believe in it. And even as the disciples received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we read about that in the book of Acts, empowered by the Spirit to go and to bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, Lord, I pray also that you would send your Spirit fresh upon us to empower us for this work because it's too great of a work for us to accomplish on our own. In our own selves, Lord, we would just make a mess of it. But in your power, great things can be accomplished. 
So work in your church, work through your church to bring glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.